Welcome back to the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host, as always, Robbie Burke. And before we get into today's show, I just want to give a shout out to all of the show's sponsors. Firstly, upmentorship.com, which is one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. The Ultimate Performance Online Mentorship is 20 hours of top-class strength and conditioning information available for instant access right at your fingertips. To find out more, head over to upmentorship.com, which is linked up in the show notes. Check it out and help support the show. Next, I want to give a shout out to Altus360 and Altus Education, which are two outstanding online resources for any practitioner in the sports preparation profession. Be sure to head over to the show notes and check out these unique platforms. Next, I want to give a shout out to Joseph Johnson at Ultimate Alley Concepts. Ultimate Alley Concepts is a multifaceted company providing the most sophisticated scientific material in sports science. Ultimate Alley Concepts is the world's leading resource for translated sports preparation material. Next, I want to give a shout out to Papi's National Sports Performance Association, which is an online certification platform for professionals within the sports preparation profession. Currently, the NSPA has four certifications available, Speed and Agility, delivered by Lee Taft, Olympic Weightlifting, delivered by Will Fleming, Nutrition, delivered by Dr. Chris Moore, and Program Design, delivered by Coach Robert Dos Remedios. For more information on the NSPA, be sure to check out all of the links in the show notes. Finally, I want to thank another brainchild of Pat Beef's, Athletes Acceleration, which is another online medium that delivers excellent educational resources for strength and conditioning professionals. And just like with all of our other sponsors, head over to the show notes to get the links to all of the available products that Athletes Acceleration has to offer. A full disclosure, except for Altus360 and Altus Education, I am an affiliate to all of the show sponsors. Lastly, before we get into today's interview, I just wanted to let all the listeners know that the podcast is now on Patreon. If you feel that you are in a position to support the show, I would truly appreciate any donations you'd be willing to make to help support the podcast. Okay, that's enough rambling from me. Let's get into today's show. This episode's guest is Elliot Richardson, who is the head physical preparation coach at Acadia University. Elliot is entering his third full year as the head physical preparation coach at Acadia University. He is a graduate of Acadia's kinesiology program before going on to play three years in the Canadian Football League. As an undersized athlete, he attributes much of his success to the enhancement of his athletic abilities through year-round training. More importantly, the lessons that year-round physical preparation taught him are the cornerstones of the philosophies he's looking to impart on current athletes who want to reach a higher level of athletic achievement. On this episode, Ellie and I discussed many topics, including his background. Ellie and I touch on how constraints help you to be more creative. Elliot shares with us the differences between American and Canadian football, which I didn't know before this podcast. I asked Elliot to share with us his influences. I asked Elliot what are the good and not so good things that he currently sees within the physical preparation profession, and what solutions would he offer for the not so good things that he currently sees. Elliot and I discuss auto-regulation. I asked Elliot about his master's dissertation that he completed at St. Mary's University in 2018. I asked Elliot what have been the biggest lessons he's learned so far in his life and career. I asked Elliot, how does he learn? I asked Elliot to share us his top life advice. Elliot and I discuss about issues with short-term training studies. 
I asked Elliot what is the one thing that he does every day that is essential to his day. I asked Elliot for his top and current book recommendations. I asked Elliot if he only had one year left on planet Earth, how would he spend that year and why? I asked Elliot if he could invite five people to dinner, dead or alive, who would he invite and why? And finally, I asked Elliot about his master's experience at St. Mary's University in Twickenham, London. Guys, this was a great conversation with Elliot, and I hope you really, really enjoy it. Elliot, my man, thank you so much for making time to come on and speak with me today. Uh, what I really like about this podcast is we only briefly met, actually, mm-hmm. this year at St. Mary's. Um, and so I don't know a whole lot about your background, which is great. And I'd say for people listening, there'll be a lot of people who won't know who you are. So this is going to be a, yeah. a great conversation. So fill us in on your background, man. Give, give us a good detailed background. You know, who are you? Where are you from? Tell us a little bit about your childhood, like sports play growing up, and how did you get to where you are right now? Absolutely. Um, so first of all, Robbie, thanks for having me on. Um, you know, I've been listening to your podcast for a while and, and seeing the, the just the absolute star-studded, um, you know, detailed list of people who have, have come before me. It's pretty impressive to be on here with you and and to be able to share something with the community that uh, has really benefited me over well, essentially my entire career. Because I'll talk about it in terms of never really having a, a formal, you know, on-site mentor, but more just influences that uh, I've been able to gain experience and knowledge from over pretty much just from the SNC network. Um, but you know, you know, where I came from and to answer your question, um, grew up in Toronto, Canada, um, you know, played variety of sports growing up, uh, obviously hockey being Canadian was one of my first sports, baseball, uh, that actually got into uh, football, American, well, Canadian football. I won't, you know, try and get into the, the differences between Canadian and American football, pretty similar, uh, for those, uh, the, from the European side of things. Um, but started playing that, um, if you haven't seen me before, I'm pretty limited on the stature side. Probably only stand about on a good day, maybe five foot eight. So, um, you know, you know, decent amount of athleticism, um, but uh, obviously not at an elite level. Um, so when I got to high school and uh, being undersized, uh, you know, strength conditioning, strength training, something I took to relatively quickly just to try and get a bit of an edge, and um, you know, fell in love with it, became pretty good at it, and and it uh, helped me sort of always stay just at that you know, being able to sort of surpass everyone that uh, at each level that was maybe a little bit more physically gifted than I was um, just by, you know, work ethic and training and, um, you know, never really had a formal coach early on. It was more just, you know, older guys showing me some basic stuff and um, that allowed me to get to, you know, played a, you know, uh, as a champion kind of the high school level, played for our provincial team, won a national championship, uh, played for Team Canada, and actually you know, played in the World Junior, um, American World Junior Football Championships down in, in Florida, um, uh, beat the U.S. team, uh, so had a, had a world championship, and then you know, went on to get a scholarship at a Canadian university out in the East Coast. Uh, um, and the reason I went there was, you know, had the, again, the opportunity, uh, wasn't the biggest school in the world, but, um, you know, they gave me an opportunity to play. And, uh, so went to Acadia university up in Nova Scotia and, uh, had really good success. There it was, you know, rookie of the year there again, still undersized. And we didn't, again, didn't have a formal strength conditioning coach there, but, uh, uh fortunately our head coach was a graduate of the university of Oregon and, um, he knew strength conditioning was important and so we had something that was pretty well organized we had a faculty in the kinesiology department dr fowles who um actually was the editor-in-chief for the canadian um inter-university sport um you know football kind of board and had it you know had our program set up for us that was leadership run and i you know kind of dove headfirst into that and um 
you know, change my major from arts history to kinesiology and realized that uh, if I wanted to get an edge in, in sports, that uh, kinesiology is going to be it. So I wanted to educate myself first and foremost in terms of um, getting better as an athlete. And shoot, by my second year, I was uh, working with the team itself where we had a speed school twice a week um, in the off season. And I would, I would, I would be involved with it and being coached on one day. And then the next day I would coach the other half of the team that was doing it. So um, that was kind of my first introduction to coaching, realizing that that was something I enjoyed, the technical aspects of, of speed development. Um, and uh, that's when I first started, you know, in the summers when I first started to get, uh, um, uh, you know, formally coached by an SNC person, uh, Larry Justanis, who was a, you know, a disciple of Charles Poliquin and, uh, um, so, you know, that was one of my formal instructions to, to Paul Quinn's work as well, too. And, uh, you know, had some success at Acadia, you know, was an, an, an all Canadian there. So top two in my position and same time was an academic all Canadian because I fell in love with kinesiology, even though I was in high school, I could barely pass a class. So barely got a university. But once I got there, I was, you know, um, you know, well into the eighties in terms of my marks and, um, got to my. Uh, last year, well, unfortunately, just before my last year in an all-star game, I ruptured my tricep. Um, and your, so I missed your tricep? Yeah, I ruptured my tricep um, <laughs> in, a, in an all-star game. Um, and so that was kind of a damper going into my draft year for the Canadian Football League and uh, missed half the year and, and, and trained to rebound from that. And, um, you know, again, I was still hadn't grown by this point. Um, you know, unfortunately, stopped growing around 18 and uh, I was holding on hope that uh, I'd have a late growth spurt by 20s but that never arrived um, so it came down to you know the draft and you know when my roommate he got drafted fifth overall I would undraft it but uh, fortunately I got picked up by um, as an undrafted free agent by the Edmonton Eskimos the Canadian Football League and went to a training camp uh, as a you know, fourth string my position and um, by the end of training camp you know, I jumped up to second string and uh, a couple other guys got cut. And then very first game, um, the starter, who was actually my roommate, went down with a knee injury. And, and so I was, you know, put in action by my second game. And uh, so I was actually the first player in my draft class to, to start that year in the CFL and started for the pretty much the remainder of that year. Um, unfortunately, got hurt the next year in uh, preseason, dislocated my wrist, um, my lunate. Um, and uh, so missed half the season there, but came back and had another uh, uh, start the rest of the year. Unfortunately, our team didn't do too well the, those two years. So everyone got fired after that year. And that's just the way pro sports is. And um, at that point, um, I got you know signed with another team and it's kind of on and off the roster. And halfway through the year, they released me. And when you, you know, when you get cut from pro sports, they give you a one-way ticket. So um, I called up my, uh, my former football coach and asked him if I could come out to, to help him out. And, you know, coach, coach a little bit of football, but also help out with S&C because there, there still wasn't anyone back at school that had been doing it. So got on the, on the, the plane out there and helped out and just happened that it was in the right place at the right time where we had a new athletic director on, uh, on staff. And one of his uh, first goals was to, to establish S&C at our, at our university. Um, you know, it was a lot of bigger schools in the country have it already, but we were, we were we're a very small school with small budget. So, um, you know, he, want, he knew it was going to be a competitive edge. And this is back in a time where the teams weren't performing very well at all. Um, um, and then, so I worked football that year. And, and then I was able to get a couple teams under contract uh, before the new fiscal year started in April. And at that same time, my agent was calling me, asking if I wanted to give the pros another shot. And um, meanwhile, the athletic director is asking me if, uh, you, know, uh, you know, if I want to take this position to be the first uh, – 
um, first full-time strength conditioning coach at Acadia University. And, um, you know, I already knew this is the path I wanted to go uh, because of how much, the, you know, just the competitive edge that strength conditioning gave me as an athlete. And really what, you know, what I looked at it was, um, you know, there's a lot of people that are more you know, physically talented than I was at every single level, but I was able to sort of just keep one step ahead of them. Um, it's kind of uh, a bit of a wash once you get to the professional level. Everyone there works hard and is athletically gifted as well. But, uh, you know, kind of made the decision that, you know, there's a long-term opportunity in strength and conditioning, which I knew was what I wanted to go into afterwards. I'd done my CSCS. I'd started kind of shadowing a little bit at uh, with our SNC coach at the Edmonton Eskimos, and realized that was a passion of, that uh, that I wanted to pursue. And um, so when it came down to it, you know, decided to go the SNC route and, and forego and just another chance of getting cut because uh, it's inevitably going to happen at the pro level. You're going to get cut at some point. Very few people go out in their own terms. So stayed there, and you know, by April 2012 was the first uh, full-time SNC coach at Acadia and um, sorry, we have 10 teams there and it's also a bit of a unique uh, situation because of how small our school is and how limited our budget resources are. Um, our athletic director took the model of, okay, well, we can only pay you about half of what your position is worth. Um, we'll let you, let you, you know, build an income off of the space that we have um, um, for your own private business. And I thought that was an attractive opportunity. Um, you know, a lot of people question it. They're like, well, you know, it's a small, like, um, I live in Halifax right now. It's a city of a couple hundred thousand people, but uh, Katie is in a small town of about 3,000 in a community of about 20. Um, so like, why would you want to train people privately in a, you know, such a small community? And my thought process is, well, no one's doing it, one. And then two, you know, from everything I was reading at that time, that um, the you know, biggest thing every new coach needs is experience. And for me, it was just a no-brainer that, you know, I had 300 you know, 300 athletes, varsity athletes that uh, I'd really be able to, to, to cut my chops with. And mm-hmm. you think about that 10,000 hours, well, you know, there's a perfect chance to accumulate thousands of hours of coaching experience early on. And so I stove head first into it and started to build a business, help supplement my income. And uh, that's grown significantly since then. And, um, you know, that's the point where it's able to fund, um, you know, another full full-time coach as well as some, some part-time yeah. people as well too and a robust internship and has had some success in terms of developing coaches and um i guess really kind of what that whole this my whole story and experience developed into sort of a mission statement where you know i never really had a you know too much in terms of formal strength conditioning coach in my life so i'm just looking to try and provide our athletes here with everything i wish i had because i know there are some shortcomings in my own training and and uh some things i would have liked to improve more on um definitely it was you know weight room centric um maybe not as well developed as i'd like you know the breadth of it uh, specifically so especially as i you know look out into the world and what the ncaa programs are doing pro programs are doing it's how can we replicate that here at, at my situation with limited resources and uh and and uh, i guess you know increased constraints so um yeah that's a bit of my story and um yeah i've been there now for about seven years and you know built we have a partnership with the Canadian sports institute running a satellite location out of our gym as well too and now under my third gym since we've been there um you know my permanent home now so uh, with all the work that's gone into a new facility um and uh yes yeah, that's, that's how i've of uh, where I started and how I've gotten to where I am now, going from the big city of Toronto to a small town of 3,000 in Little Wolfville, Nova Scotia. Man, that's what I call an intro. Yeah. Good stuff. But uh, yeah, you're talking about constraints here. Constraints make you creative though, don't they? Mm. Yeah, they, they make you creative, but they also 
I think they can, you know, make you more effective. I think just in terms of what I learned at St. Mary's with, you know, constraints led approach coaching is, um, you know, constraints help you find the, the right answer as opposed to having, sometimes it's, you know, having too many options isn't a good thing. Um, when you really limit your options or you limit the options of an athlete, it's, you're, they're more likely to find the proper solution. Yeah. Big time. Big time. Yeah, it's yeah. funny. Cause that's kind of where my mind goes as well. But, uh, yeah, you're a bit of a fucking liar too. You're not a good athlete. Mubalics, you're not. Jeez, that was some career. <laughs> uh, come here, tell me, because I, I am into the NFL now. I, mm. I, would, I would keep fairly up to date with it. So mm. is there an actual difference between like the rules of Canadian and American football? Is there yeah, actual- yes. Yeah, so there's only, there's only three downs in, uh, in Canadian football. So oh. one less down. There's an extra player on the field. Um, and the, yeah, and the dimensions are a bit bigger as well too. Uh, the field's 10 yards longer. The end zones are 10 yards deeper. And the field is about eight yards wider. What, and why, why is that? It just is. Sorry. I don't. I don't know. I think it's. It's. It's just. Uh, just, just to be fucking different. I think. I think it's just more like in terms of the, the evolution from rugby to, to American football. It's, it didn't quite fully evolve to the American game because there's there's still some things that are more similar to rugby. There's actually I can't. I watched a YouTube channel that kind of breaks down the, all the yeah. different variations of uh, yeah, you know, yeah. rugby, of, of Gaelic football, of, of Australian rules football, and Canadian football and American football. And so the probably the Canadians a little bit closer to, in terms of the evolutionary chain, is a little bit closer to, to what rugby rugby started off as. Very good, very good. Yeah, yeah. I know you said there too, um, what, what kind of came to my head when you said you hadn't had a formal strength and conditioning mentor, mm-hmm. uh, well, what kept coming to my mind was James Smith in, in my mind that he, he would just be mm-hmm. like, well, that's a good thing. That's a good yeah. thing. You know, J- J- yeah. James, James would see that as, as an advantage, not a disadvantage. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, again, it comes down to perspective because we know how James feels about uh, mentorships or, or, uh, yeah. uh, or how James feels about experience versus expertise. I love that when he gets into that. Yeah, um, absolutely. But uh, listen, that's a savage, a savage intro into your background. I really appreciate that because it, it gives a good frame of reference um, for people about who you are. And mm-hmm. that's, uh, that's brilliant to hear, um, you know, how much the S&C position has evolved for, from uh, where you're at now from where it was in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, so there's yourself and is there a full-time assistant now as well with you? Yeah, there's a full-time assistant right wow. now. and then wow. um, That's, that's in the space of what, six years since 2012? Six years and yeah, we're looking to hopefully add another one in the next year. Um, just because technically right now I'm, I'm, they contract my, my business uh, to operate all the S&C. So it's technically they've outsourced it. Oh. Uh, but what, what we're looking to do here in the, because it's grown so much in the next year is I'm actually going to operate it all under the umbrella of the university and take a salary from them. Um, very good, very good. Sign uh, me up, Eddie. Sign me up. If you're yeah. in a position, I'll, I'll put it in. <laughs> taking applications in 2019, I guess. But yeah, it's just uh, the university has this nice deal where because they're a public institution, they don't really pay taxes. So, um, so it just frees up all this extra money that I normally pay as uh, you know fees and accounting fees and all that very stuff. Very good, very good. Yeah, yeah. Sneak, I like that. I like that. Exactly. I can, I can kind of... Uh, um, Kind of grow grow the position a little bit like uh, spend that. If you read the book, uh, read the book Shoe Dog. I actually haven't. No. Okay, great book. Highly recommend. But he talks about sort of the the, the growth of Phil Knight, which only had this influx of resources to be able to take to the next level. Because for decades they were just breaking, even breaking, even breaking, even yeah. this one this one kind of tipping point. So that's where I kind of feel where I am, where it's going to take what we do to great. the next level, just creating this new position. Great, savage. Is that, that's a book about Phil Knight, is it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I've heard people mention the book, but I haven't. I actually didn't know that was the title of it. I, I, I hear just people saying the Phil Knight book. That's all I ever hear people say. Yeah, absolute must read in terms of uh, uh, for coaches, but in terms of building something, you don't realize how close year after year Nike was to folding and just becoming obsolete. 
I have a really stupid question here. Uh, uh, it's funny because pe- people are going to say, do you not notice? I actually don't notice. But I thought fucking uh, Nike came from your man Bowden in, in Oregon. Through who, sorry? I thought it was enough that coach Bowden, he was pre no. Fontaine's coach. Did he not start Nike, no? Yeah, so they, he, was, he was one of the partners in there. So ah, if, you read, yeah, yeah. if you read, if you read the, the book, you'll you get all the answers. I, uh, usually there's some, yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, read, I'll, I'll just read the book. So, yeah. Kamir, um, you mentioned a few names there, but I'm still going to mm-hmm. ask, and you did say you didn't have any formal mentorship, mentor, mentors in the field, but mm-hmm. who have been your biggest influences on you, not only professionally, but also personally? So, both your professional and personal influence. Mm-hmm. I mean, professionally, of course, um, you know, Mike Boyle, huge, huge influence. Um, Mike, Mike who? Mike who? Mike Boyle, Michael Boyle. I don't know if you've heard of him. Um, so, you know, a small little, small little facility and tiny, uh, tiny, tiny facility. little facility. And uh, I'm actually, very, I'm actually wearing a, I'm wearing a Boyle top, so I am. Okay, nice. <laughs> so he's he's one of my early influences. One of the, the first books I even bought as an athlete, trying to um, you know improve my training. Um, but obviously, you know, another one, another big one is Joe Ken. Um, we run a bit of a tier system here with some of our, some of our sports. Um, so Joe Ken, Dan Baker, Charles Poliquin, uh, Mike Robertson, Eric Cressy, but then even some of my other coaches, uh, like Larry Justanis, uh, coming along. Um, and then, you know, more recently, Dan John, Dan Kleather, um, you know, from, uh, from yeah. my, my master's program there. And, and then just guys, a couple, you know, you know, uh, local guys like Steve Lidstone, who's built uh, now three SNC programs in Canadian universities. Um, and so he was, he's a bit of a you know, professional or personal mentor in terms of how to set things up the way I've set things up at Acadia to, um, cause he's grown programs at, you know, schools like York university and McMaster where he started off as the only person and, and built up this kind of hybrid model of, of private and, uh, and university sport, varsity sport, um, where the, the private models, you know, funds, funds everything else. So, um, you know, he's on to his third place now and doing that there as well. And I'm just trying to sort of replicate what we're doing on the East coast with the, the constraints. And then, and then Ken Seaman was kind of the, he was the first SNC coach in our, in our conference as well too. So being able to, um, get some, some knowledge from him about how to set it all up and be effective. Have you ever met uh, Joe Ken? Have not met Joe. No, I would love to house yeah. yeah i must get him on the podcast but, but i i it'll just be like a buddy morris episode where he just asks yeah. one, one question and you just sit back for four hours <laughs> pretty much <laughs> just pretty much but uh no. what about um personally who, who've been big influences on you you know family or your know, friends or uh personally i mean i, I still go back to like uh, read a ton of books so um yeah, yeah just yeah. uh just a lot of the, the books books i read like just you know malcolm malcolm gladwell i think um has influenced me in terms of like the ten thousand hour stuff and uh, some of those thought processes early on but uh um you know personally i mean um i mean i'll say some of my coaches like even my, my yeah. football coach like he one of his big Big his one of his big sayings was always you know you don't want to be the average because uh, you don't want to be like everyone else because you know be, by being like everyone else that's the definition of average so you have to be different in order to 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 be better so yeah. um, and then you know, he's a couple of the things he always said Coach Cummins was you know the little things are always the most important and and work ethic more important than anything like he's someone that helped to ingrain work ethic in me and, and just trying to outwork people and uh, putting in the hours to make things happen it's so uh like i know you're in canada but it seems to be this north american team like about like like coaches seem to have such a massive influence mm-hmm. on, on everyone's life it's just now i wouldn't say it's not necessarily like that here in ireland but i was listening to the my muscle project uh podcast with the two australian boys uh lachlan and, and, and ralph and uh and raf 
I've Ralph of years was saying Raf, Raf and Lachlan, but they they were saying like in Australia it's not like that at all. They're like coaches are a fucking joke down there, you know. Nobody mm-hmm. gives them respect. But it was it, one of my when I went to America for the first time back in two thousand nine, it was the first thing like that struck me because I went to a scrimmage. I didn't know what a fucking scrimmage was. We see we call yeah. we call them just training sessions here, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were like we're going training, and then like mm-hmm. they were all like we're going to a scrimmage, and we were like what the fuck's a scrimmage? Yeah, I thought it was a challenge match or something like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. No. I've, I've had to try and explain to some of our interns like work with our soccer clubs that okay training equals practice so when, when, the, yeah, when, the, yeah. when the soccer coach says hey we're, we have training staff and I'm like they're not working out with us they're they're it's their practice time so, yeah exactly yeah. but I, I can remember uh, it was just a high school scrimmage like you know they were just training away and uh just like you know everything was coach just coach and coach and yes coach yes coach and just i was like jesus yeah. christ like it's just like it's not a bad thing like and obviously it's yeah. still as you said good work ethic and a bit of discipline and all that like but uh no, it's uh, it's just funny. Nearly everyone like from North America usually says like it's their family or a coach that was in their life, or sometimes it's a teacher, but usually a coach. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So uh, you listen to the podcast. So you you've heard this uh, next question, and then we're gonna d- dig into your uh, your sort of research that you did for your dissertation, which was yep. which was an excellent um, dissertation. But uh, before we get to that, the question I'm gonna ask is regarding the whole sports um, sports uh, preparation profession. Mm-hmm. What are the what are the good and the not so good things you currently see within like the entire sports preparation profession? And with the not so good things, what solutions would you offer? I think the good thing, at least from my 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 world lens, is we're be, we're becoming more. And this is something I'm trying to become is more of a generalized specialist. Um, so trying like, to we're like trying that, to like that. yeah. Um, there's a couple of uh, articles I read, and just in terms of even you know uh, some of the classic minds of of ancient history, like they were you know they may, you may have, may have thought that they were just really good at one thing. They're actually you know polymaths. They're really good at lots of. They're pretty good at lots of things. Um, so I think with you know you know maybe it's come from exos where um, you know or where you're you're being asked not just to be good in the weight room. You're you're asked to be you know pretty good at the track and field stuff. Pretty good at the changes direction stuff pretty good at the energy system stuff pretty good at uh, um you know the, the whole art of coaching type aspect so i think as a profession the trend i think we're heading which i think is very positive is more of a, a, a well-balanced performance side a more holistic approach in, in nature i think um i think that's the i think that's a very positive direction we're going into and that's something that from my own background and influence that i'm trying to become more of is because you know, when I was trained, it was really just strength and conditioning. And I think for my own thing, when, I, when I'm trying to offer my athletes is a bit more of a well-rounded approach, more balanced approach, more holistic approach to training where it's not just, yes, being strong is extremely important, but there's some other things that need to be be, uh, be improved as well too to become just the best athlete possible. So um, I think that's something that's extremely positive. I think maybe you know, where we are right now, that's a bit of a challenge in, in my own my own life, my own sort of practice is, uh, you know, the, the emergence of data and sports science. Um, you know, it's not that it's a bad thing, but there's just so much of it. And it's like doing it for the, you know, I find myself doing it as well, like doing it for the sake of doing it, but they're not being able to try and leverage and utilize the information, especially I think, um, you know, someone like myself, or maybe a smaller, smaller institution, you know, less resources is, you know, trying to see what big schools or big professional teams are doing where they have, you know, one full-time person allocated for, you know, hire just for GPS or something and, or, you know, just for, um, you know, heart rate monitoring and uh, being able to try and replicate that, you know, on top of all the other duties I'm doing um, when something that, uh, or even just trying to, you know, sift through all the, you know, wellness data 
uh, and workload data. Um, so I think that I think that's maybe the pendulum swung a little too far on that. It's going to come back to center. Just need to figure out where that is to be able to find the best information possible for it um, in a smaller setting. I think it has extremely high value, but it's I find it extremely challenging to try and uh, deal with on a daily basis and make something use of it as opposed to just create another headache for myself. So. In regards to, I know you kind you kind of touched on there, but in regards to yeah. like, say you have someone who's in a similar situation as yourself, doesn't have a lot of resources, and they they are also uh, they also find they're a bit overwhelmed by this by like sport science and data. What, mm-hmm. what what would your advice or solution be to overcome being overwhelmed? Is it just to you know keep things simple, focusing on yes. big problems? Sim- simplify it, simplify it. Even you know one of my former interns came back, and you know he's. Uh, um, he was working for a professional club and even at the professional level, they were, they narrowed down their one question or three questions because um, yeah, yeah, yeah. they found that even the guys at the professional level weren't, um, weren't really giving them the information they needed. And, you know, our, our sort of, even with the wellness data we collect, it's, you know, it's automated, but it's not automatically, you know, they're not automatically filling it out all the time either. So <laughs> yeah. um, your best bet is to try and get it directly from them. And that's what they did. And that's in a situation where they had two support staff for every athlete. Um, oh. And they're still narrowed down to three questions. So, um, you know, I, sometimes I wonder if everything that we say we're doing is actually being done um, or if it's just this, this sort of show that, oh, this is what we can do because we have all this cool, cool toys and, and techniques. So, um, you know, come back to, you know, don't want to sound old school, but just being able to, you know, ask your athletes a question, how you feeling and, and then just knowing how to scale and, you know, listening to Devin McConnell and his sort of, you know, lighting system and how they do things in terms of, Hey, if you're super fresh and you're on point and, and uh, you're feeling the best every day, you might add some weight and add a set. If you're feeling good, you do the program. If you're, you know, a little bit, you know, under recovered then we might knock off either a set or knock off some intensity and um if you're just absolutely crushed well we're still gonna do some work but we're gonna you know drop the intensity maybe 10 15 percent as well as drop the volume but you're still gonna get some active recovery because that's gonna be more effective than just not showing up that day you know the more and more i'm sort of just meditating myself on the area of appropriate volume and intensity prescription on like a, just a, like a, a moment to moment basis. So, or, you know, I feel like more day to day basis. Um, so basically it's basically what I've been meditating on an awful lot lately, just auto regulation. Like the more I think of auto regulation, like just the more it makes sense to me. Like yeah. as in, I had a great conversation with Evan Pike and he, uh, he works down in Atlanta in training think tank with Max El hash. So they were training a lot of that. So, uh, Noah Olson, who's a cross athlete trains there okay. and, and Travis Mayer, who's who's qualified for the games before as well but evan evan's you know fairly deep thinker you know like like yourself and yourself nerds as well like we, we love nerding out about this yeah. stuff but he was he made a really good point he says like you look at the old perlipin charts it's like you have to do this amount of volume and this amount of intensity blah blah, blah. and he's like i had a guy one time and this guy like was super strong like he's like he's like his max in the squat was super strong and he said one day, like he said, he was doing auto regulation that, you know, if you drop off this much or the RP, you know, whatever, he was doing, he was doing some sort of auto regulation. And he said that this guy got something like double figures of sets of five at like, it was well over 85% of his max in the squat. Like, mm-hmm. and he kept doing sets of five until he hit, I think like 10, 12 sets or something outrageous. Jeez. Like that day, and and see, most people say, "Ah, oh, this guy must be weak." You know, he, his mm-hmm. max, his max squat must be only like you know three hundred pound or whatever. And mm-hmm. So he was able to do because like, you know that old. So it was the old sort of Poliquin thing too, and um, where they used to do that that test where they put eighty five percent in the bar, and if you could get like 
double reps and that you were more of a slow twitch guy where if you could only get three reps you were fast switch and like Ed mm-hmm. was like no no this guy's max was like legit like I think he was a 500 plus squatter or more than that mm-hmm. and he was squatting like multiple sets of five with like 85% plus or whatever so he, he was just like that day that guy needed that amount of like stimulus to get or he, he was able to handle that amount of stimulus to get that adaptation he's another day it just, you know, but like, and the other thing that everyone was trying to say was like, if you were trying to prescribe that in a regular program and people were like, kind of almost brainwashed and just, well, Perlipin says, or, you know, yeah. or this chart says, or, or this text says, they'd be like, you're out of your fucking mind. There's no way anyone could do that. And it's like, well, I've seen it. So like, just the more, like, just talking to everyone about that. And then just even thinking about my own training, training of other athletes too. It's just like, yeah, auto regulation just seems to make more sense, whether it's tracking a bar speed or it's just like, I, that's why I actually really do like, um, APRE that was yeah. that was in yeah, super, yeah. super train that Brian Mann kind of popularized yeah. as well or repopularized. I I found that good because I use that for a while. And it's kind of like I know you probably noticed too. Do you ever know you do something and it works really well for a while and it's working so well that you fucking change it? Then you're just like yeah, yeah. Uh, you kind of get bored. It's like this kind of works almost too easy. Like you know because I remember I used it with my with my guys one season. I was like that worked really fucking well. Why did I stop using it? It's just probably yeah. you, you kind of just think. You know, it's kind of like that thing we change things because we think athletes are getting bored. It's like, I think it's me. You no, know, it's because we're getting bored. Yeah, that's exactly. tough thing working with some of our coaches is trying to get them to realize that, you know, athletes aren't getting bored. We're getting bored a little bit. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I've used the AP. That's actually my, uh, that was the APRE was actually my 05 uh, MSC uh, presentation when I look at my critical analysis there. So, oh, very that's good. I, very yeah, good. That's something, that's something I use a little bit with, uh, with our athletes at certain points of the kind of our. It's our four-year plan. Uh, somebody used Savage. a little bit earlier on. Yeah. Savage. Yeah. Sorry. So my 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 sort of ramble there is just that I've been meditating off on auto regulation. Kind of like the more and more I think about it, I think some sort of inbuilt auto regulation should nearly always be part of of mm-hmm. the training process. Because as you said too, it was funny because I was literally just going to say to you like and as as much as sometimes it kind of angers me a little bit to say this because i kind of have this thing with old school coaches where like, oh, there's too much technology and like it just yeah. you just need to talk to their athletes like and, like they go at the other end of the extreme where you're like wait hold on if, if that was our mindset like we'd still be in fucking caves trying to make yeah, it yeah. so like it's a balance it's a spectrum we need to be somewhere in the middle but at the end of the day it really just fucking is asking people how are you doing do you know what i mean like you know if you strip all it right. all if you strip it all back, like, you know, getting overwhelmed, but like, so what I'm trying to say is if you had to, if you're in a, an environment like yourself that has constraints in terms of staff and then budget and whatnot, and even though it's greatly improved since you started mm-hmm. years ago, as you said, like trying to just get back to the big rocks, like, right, what's the most efficient thing I can do from a cost standpoint and even mm-hmm. a simplicity standpoint? It's like looking at your athletes every day walking in, like it doesn't take a genius to know like geez, that guy is ballocks tired or you know how you doing and they're like yeah, i'm grand it's like okay you say you're grand but clearly you're not fine do you know what i mean like so it is having that sort of emotional emotional intelligence aspect as well to it um and again wrapping this up i just think again that some form of auto regulation training whether it's like an apre or tracking bar speed or, or something yeah, like that. i think it yeah, we, i like bar speed personally we have we're fortunate to have uh quite a few gym awares um very good and I think, yeah, that's a, it's a complete system on its own. Um, but especially for the, the auto-regulating piece. Uh, even though, uh, and I haven't looked into this, and I'll be talking to him soon. Uh, apparently, Mladen Janovic, though, he, he's had some criticisms or critiques on it, but I haven't seen what it, what, what it is yet, like, you know. Um, but uh, listen, Mladen's fucking way too smart for me sometimes. Yeah, really. yeah absolutely. Yeah, I mean, he's fucking talking about economics and how that relates to sport, which I kind of get to a certain degree. I, I know where he's coming from, you know, the whole sort of diverse por- portfolio is kind of like concurrent training, like diversity. Mm-hmm. 
Anyway, I'm rambling here, and you're the guest. So uh, let's get into your dissertation. That's kind of how we, how we came across. And just for the listeners, mm. it's a really good story, too, because so myself and Elliot were both in England last June. I'm only just finished second year. Elliot has done his, he's finished the bastard, you're done already. Yeah, yeah I know. MS, great. But uh, I was walking to Tesco, like, there's only usually like four or five places I ever am. It's a library, a supermarket, because I love food. I'm either sleeping or I'm in the gym, so it's usually, the, or the park, there's the five places. Yeah. Doing a walk. But uh, I was walking to the Tesco and I see, I see this guy, you never seen him before. And I see this A in this top. And I remember I said to you, I thought it was yeah. Arizona. I thought it was Arizona. Arizona. Yeah, yeah, I've gotten that before. And you were like, no, no, it's okay. You know what I mean? And yeah. um, so we stopped and we were talking. Elliot was getting his dry cleaning of his suit. And, yeah. then, and then when we were on the onsite, I went to the poster presentation of everyone and I saw Elliot and then saw the dissertation he did. And I was like, this is a really fucking good dissertation. So good that Elliot won the poster. You won the first prize for the poster and the, the it was, was did you, did top, you? top research, uh, top research project. Yeah, yeah, say, that, say, say, yeah. say that shit like you own it. Yeah, he's saying it's top. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I go back to my high school and tell, tell them that. So yeah. back when I was barely, barely passing classes. Listen, I didn't even finish high school. The, the high school version we have here in Ireland left, left. I was a disaster. But anyway, when I get my master's, I'll shut up their arse. Exactly. No, that's how I feel too. Uh, yeah, yeah. So got the best post presentation, got the best dissertation or thesis. Um, and so I'm going to get Eddie to speak about it because it was such a brilliant design. It was so simplistic, but yet like the information where you could implement straight away, which is what the beauty of the dissertation. So take it away. Yeah. So well, and, and to, to start off with, I did, uh, did, did change my practice right away. That's how, you know, you know, simple and how good the information was, but, uh, well, like, explain, um, explain that to the listeners. So like, obviously, oh, yeah. I'll, I'll go, I'll go back the whole, I'll go back the whole story. So yeah, what, what, you know, what, what I, sorry, before you start, what I want to know is, yeah, what, what sparked, how did you come up with the idea? So, yeah, so, so last year, um, so I knew I wanted something training, training wise, uh, when I was picking my dissertation project, just because, uh, you know, Dan Baker's big influence of mine. And, you know, he's one of our, was one of our faculty members there for the onsite. And, um, one thing I loved about his, his stuff is that, you know, all that came from the weight room, there's no, this extra lab stuff and, you know, having to you know, do stuff outside of your normal work. And for me, that was attractive simply because the amount of coaching hours I spent during a year was, is a lot. And, uh, I, I definitely could not afford to be in the weight room do my normal coaching duties and then have to go do some additional you know emg research or something like that and and live in a lab and i also wanted to be you know highly applicable and also you know dan Clether, who's the, the the director of the program he kind of threw it a challenge that um you know training good training studies are hard to do so i thought well that, that might be that might be the challenge i want to take and uh we sat down in our initial uh, initial class we presented some topics this is there's one on on a five you percent know, difference in training intensity and um you know that kind of interested me and um so i started thinking okay how could i how could i make this work it just ended up timing perfectly that our, our off season for a football team which has about uh 80 80 guys on it um you know timed up perfectly with when the ethics were due and okay i started thinking okay yeah, well, I have this program. I have a lot of athletes that are sort of under my under my direction, under my control, and um, and uh, we have you know I, I looked at uh, and Dan kind of talked to us at one of our classes about okay, well you know if you wave it like this, I'm like okay, well we kind of wave like that because I generally follow some of Dan Baker's sort of off season you know programming perspective and uh, but you, under Joe Ken's kind of tier system design um, on a three day three day program. So um, I started thinking okay, that's something I could definitely do and. You know, I, I'm I'm always looking for the optimal way or the most efficient way to, to get something done with our athletes, and I, I still think there's a way to get stronger, better. Um, and so I started to so kind of 
bought into this and and started researching it and realized that there was not a lot being done. So the kind of the title of it to come full circle was, you know, the effect of training five percent lighter on, on strength gains of collegiate football players. So um, to kind of give you the summary, I, I recruited 48, uh, 48 of our football players. All of them had at least a year over a year of formal strength conditioning experience at the university level. Um, so they're all at least in their second year uh, at, our, at our program, at least played two years. Um, so we brought them in the beginning of, of uh, the off season, did some one rep max testing, and that was after the winter break. They had a program they were supposed to be doing on their own while they're at home. Uh, I think the compliance is probably pretty good and um, came in, did one rep max testing over, over two days. And then um, I wanted to make sure that my study design was, was was well orchestrated so I broke them into three position groups um, you know based on anthropometrics so I had like my, my linemen in one group I had my box players so the, you know, the next type of body size I had my outside box so like the, the smallest fastest uh, guys all grouped together and then I ranked them all from strongest to weakest in those categories and I randomly assigned you know the strongest two linemen to opposite groups and did that all the way down to the same thing with the next group so my groups were extremely well balanced I don't think there was they're almost completely equal from height and weight and the biggest difference I had pre pre-test in terms of strength measures was uh, maybe a kilo um, so really well balanced groups and then they went through a undulated kind of training program um, the only difference really being was that they're, they're you know based on the tier system so their their first day one their the lead exercise on their one day was a, was a power clean on the next day was a back squat and the third day was a bench press um, so those are the primary exercises that were tested and what i looked at um, and uh, the only the only difference between the two programs was one group trained five percent lighter than the other group. Um, so I think uh, for my for my squat and bench group, we started off at uh, I think sixty five percent or sixty percent for eights, and then we went up two and a half percent per week. Then we went down to fours, and then we went up to sixes, and we finished at threes. And the one group finished at uh, uh, um, I think eighty. Five percent, I think eighty-five percent for um, eighty-five percent. The other group finished at no, it was eighty-two percent. We finished at for for bench and squat uh, for sets of three, and then for cleans we started off at sets of five. I think at sixty-five uh, percent, and then we waved all the way. We finished off at uh, eighty-seven and a half or ninety-two and a half percent for singles. So, um, you know, at the end of the, the whole twelve-week training study, and uh, you know, everything was I, I thought pretty meticulously. Um, you know, covered so to the point where I was, you know, literally going around during their warm-up sets and making sure that each guy individually had the the exact amount of weight on there that they were being prescribed because it was all prescribed loads for all their primary exercises. Then we got back to post-testing. We post-tested and then I, I uh, for one rep maxes again and then looked at the results and uh, didn't find any statistical difference between uh, the two groups. Uh, They're nearly identical in terms of strength gains. I think the, the biggest difference was in our squat where the heavy group improved two kilos more um, than the the low intensity group, uh, but a couple kind of a couple takeaways were the low intensity group only spent three weeks over eighty percent during the entire twelve weeks for their for their strength list, um, and none of them hit over eighty five percent. So they're <coughs> so with uh, um, you know some of the common research says you need to hit eighty five percent to develop max strength. Well, we didn't do that with the low intensity group, um, and then the other piece was that uh, our average and in training intensity. For a low intensity group, seventy-five percent. If you look at the the, the research of the meta-analyses by Rea, he says that you know you need to be at an average intensity of eighty percent to to gain strength gains. So that's why I chose that for um, my high intensity group. That's kind of 
that was what was sort of shown to be the most effective. But a couple kind of side things I found interesting that, um, about uh, you know the research is out there, especially in American football. A lot of a lot of the the research, especially by Hoffman, just looks at uh, giving rep maxes. So a lot of his studies and even stuff that's in the the Raya meta analyses is um, a lot of what they've done is they've taken reps and then uh, converted them to what those intensities should be, um, and not really look at like relative intensities um, in terms of where they've gotten this eighty percent from. So really when you're looking at it, a lot of some of the resources you have and stuff is actually probably closer to hundred percent of relative intensity as opposed to a submaximal training effect. Um, so this, uh, this is actually one of the, the, the few off season studies that actually used a, a fixed percentage. So it actually potentially gives our strength conditioning coaches, um, actual relative intensities, actual intensities they use off based off one rep maxes, as opposed to saying, Hey, you know, go do sets of eight, go all out, then do sets of sixes, go all out, then go sets of four all out. Um, you know, you know, we were leaving, you know, there was a pretty good buffer for our low intensity group to be able to, um, to not have to go all out from and still get stronger. So when I looked at the, cause I calculated total workload as well, the low intensity group lifted 8,000 less kilos on average, um, over the course of the, uh, 12 weeks. And that's at the, the average end. Like we had our, you know, our top guys had, you know, volume load of between the three exercises of like, you know, 90,000 kilos, um, which was, which was a lot that's the, that's the part I loved the most was, was mm. that part like 8,000 kilo less and they essentially got as equally as strong yeah and um, you know I did in my my write-up talk about a few case studies um, amongst my strongest athletes so um, I did successfully make our, our best player weaker um, over the course of the 12 weeks um, who's a running back of ours I got put into the high intensity group um, and uh uh, like one of this list stayed the same two of them went down after 12 weeks um and then but the you know the linebacker he was paired up with um made on average double double digit improvements um with his uh with his strength gains and they were so he was the number two linebacker is the number two in terms of uh, pre-strength training numbers for his position group and our running backs number one our linebackers in the low intensity group he made um, significant gains in all of his lifts, and uh, running back, you know, uh, stagnated or decreased in two of his two of his lifts. And then in our uh, our lineman group, our strongest player in the team, um, also made on average double double digit kilo improvements. Whereas the uh, the other lineman he was paired up with, I think, uh, made improvements of between two and five kilos on his lifts. So. Um, and you yeah. were saying that the the running back he was in the the high like the heavy group. Heavy group, yeah. So, so it, it could have been just simply fucking fatigue in his case. If he's in the low intensity one with the 8,000 kilo less, he could probably would have made an improvement maybe. Probably, yeah. Yeah, it was probably fatigue, but that kind of comes back to one of the things I wrote about is, you know, training athletes, not uh, powerlifting competitors exactly. or, or weightlifters. Well, you're, right? like, you're actually training football players. Really. Yeah, training football yeah. players, right? Right, so like, you know, it's just kind of this thing of like, um, you know, there's – not really peaking them. Like you can't really peak in, in team sports. You want to try and, yeah. you know, you want to try and create this optimal, optimal freshness at, um, throughout the entire year. And then this other thing that came back to during a discussion with my Viva with, with Dan Clother is that, um, you know, the, the research is based off these fixed time periods where you have to peak. Um, and that's kind of, it's kind of created this and the discussion we got into is, um, 
you know, well, what if you know you only have six weeks for, for to make training improvements, that's all you can do in your training study. Well, what are you going to do? Well, you're going to ramp up intensity to try and to try and manufacture some results. And then, you know, it's, then, it's, it's funny you say to Corinthia, but it's funny you say that, right? Because like if someone turned around to me and said, right, you've got six weeks before this. So, so let's say it's a, just for maybe the international listeners, let's just say it's a fucking soccer team. Uh, you got six weeks before this soccer team actually start their season, like as in competitive <clears throat> soccer. And people go, like, so and let's say it's a group of strength conditioning coaches, what should you do? Like, I would be the one who says, they should probably play their sport. <laughs> like, it was like, oh, the high intensity weight room. And it was like, no, 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 no. Play their fucking sport is six weeks to get ready. What do you, because we actually had a discussion with Steve Magnus about the, what we did. I think we did an off season program for lacrosse and it was getting like four weeks out from their season. And like, we were still talking about like weight room stuff. And I was like, they're fucking playing their sport, man. What are you doing? <laughs> and this, yeah, this, well, this is the problem. See, we're only seeing ourselves as SSC coach. Where I said to you offline before we came on, like I'm fortunate in a position. You're fortunate too because you played football. <laughs> like we, you could take over a, a football team. I could take over a GA team here, and I could run the whole show. And you could run the whole show because we play the sport, so we know it from a technical tactical aspect too, as well as physical preparation. Well, see, this is the thing about silo and that shit. You know what I mean? It's just people. So that's one thing I love about Fergus Connolly's thing is like, hold on, look at the game and work backwards, not the other one. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Sorry, sorry to cut into you there. You were you were speaking away there about the. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah. So I mean, we were talking just talking about Narvaiva. Like, so you do this twelve week training study, and, and then what? Well, we still have to try and get them stronger. So there's yeah. there's you know, but that's where the you know we talk about sort of the research is. A lot of them they have you know they have constraints in terms of how long they have to execute a training study. So then they, you know, have to ramp up your intensity a little bit to try and create results in a short period of time. But then the evidence, then they publish those. And now the evidence says that in order to get stronger, you need to have these high intensities, but it was only to be able to fit that six week window. But really, you know, you know, is after that, what you, after you've done your, your 12 weeks of training, you still have to try and train them. So if you leave a bit more in the tank, I think it, um, very good point I, th- I think it can it can lead for longer term results um, and we actually saw that with the you don't have access to all of our athletes over the entire summer but I had uh, again that strongest player he made who was in the low intensity group he made further gains in summer over the course of even though we ramped up running running and running volumes and jumping volumes and um, his, his number still increased you know I think 10 weeks later um, because he still had some he still had less diminished returns to try to have to deal with. Um, yeah. And you know, one thing we talked about in our Viva discussion was that, you know, it's almost like there's diminished returns in terms of recovery where if you push closer and closer to their ceiling, there's going to be less room and you're going to get closer and closer to that ceiling if you train too high intensity. Whereas if you leave a bit more of a buffer, yeah, yeah. you're going to allow that ceiling to keep on going up a little bit more until you get to the point. Um, so you can keep on making those improvements as opposed to constantly being, you know, pushed all the way to the ceiling in terms of, what your body can tolerate. Yeah, I mean, Verkus Jansky speaks about that in the in the book, the um, special strength training um, manual for coaches, um, where you know, he speaks about if you introduce uh, a stimulus of uh, uh, if you introduce a high intensity stimulus too soon to mm-hmm. an organism, as he says, but a person, as we would say, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, there's 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 a few um, there's a few drawbacks in that one potential of injury. Because the, or- the organism isn't ready for this yet, uh, but the second thing is, you will you'll get actually you'll get a, a, a substandard return from that stimulus than you would have if you had if you had waited until later on in that athlete's sort of development to utilize that because you would have got basically a better return investment if you'd use it later on in the athlete's 
yeah. development because it's kind of like leaving that little sort of like extra, extra trip trick up your sleeve for when you need it mm-hmm. instead, of, instead of spending it too soon when the athlete didn't even need it to, to keep adapting you could have used something far simpler to keep the athlete adapting and then when the time was right the athlete would have been in a better position to one take the stimulus and two get, get an actual full full potential of response from the stimulus so by yeah, by introducing a, a high intensity stimulus too soon like you're you're kind of you're getting like a diminishing return from and also a potential risk for injury as well absolutely absolutely so it's just again i even put it in there it just it actually just shows some evidence that we talk about and as snc coaches we use the verbiage you know slow cooking our athletes yeah, well this exactly. you know i think my research actually showed that you can slow cook your athletes because we we're able to sort of even you know, stretch out the length of time we're able to slowly ramp up that intensity. So, yeah. uh, you know, if I had the opportunity, I'd probably try and find a way to stretch out this 12 week study into almost the entire off season. Oh, we yeah. don't get that 90% until like, you know, week 24 or something. Yeah. Yeah. Milk the fuck it. Like if you're getting strong on 70%, why would you want to start going up to 90% all of a sudden? Just, mm-hmm. like, milk the fuck out of that. Just a few things I want to clear up to, just in case some of the listeners uh, might misinterpret me. I'm not saying like that within that six weeks with a soccer team, you wouldn't do any, physical preparation work i'm saying what would your emphasis be like people were like said at the crossing said people were like oh we still need to emphasize snc we're four weeks out for the season i'm like no no that's when you transition to like mm-hmm. sport. so that's where i was going with that just on that too uh you brought up something to my mind there where you were speaking about like kind of um you know you, you can't really peak for team sports it brings up that sort of discussion i heard valances can talk about like the difference between and i hope i'm getting right but the difference between preparedness and readiness yeah like, pre- preparedness being like basically your whole general sort of you know, physical preparedness and a more sort of global scale. Well, readiness is that like day to day, moment to yeah. moment. Like how how ready are you to express your your bucket of preparedness, if you like? So again, that goes back to our conversation earlier on, or my rant really about why I think auto regulation just is really important to have some form of auto regulation, whether it's like using like APRE in terms of an auto regulation on a strength set, or using bar velocity to look at you know your power outputs, something you know. Well, I think it also comes back to like we were talking about the holistic approach of again we're training we're training these humans training these people but they're they have this this sport that's pretty important too and yeah. they need some energy left in the tank and I think especially when it you know you talk about a sport like football where you know the perception of football is that it's extremely physically physically dominant which um, you you do need physical characteristics at uh, you know and high outputs but you also need to be able to play the sport. Um, and that's something that, you know, I, you know, I've tried to uh, sort of adjust the pendulum with the way our guys think is like, yeah, look, like you need to be strong. But you also need to be good at your sports. So let's not waste all energy here. We can't do yeah, any other yeah. skill practice. So, um, yeah, I want their, I want my athletes level of freshness to be optimal so they can still do their, do their other activities and make them good athletes as well too, and make them better at their sport and not just be absolutely crushed from the, this weight room stuff we're doing. Um, because that's not the most important thing. It's, it's, it's just a piece of their component of the, the, the entire puzzle. I think as well too, and like Buddy Morris about this, like the sport is a fucking stimulus itself. Like, like you're getting a maximum stimulus from the sport when you're playing it at such a high level too, you know? Absolutely. And that was, that was part of it too, is like, you know, we had, uh, and this is sort of where I could have done an extension of it or shoot even a PhD is like, okay, how will our improvements have been for, you know, when we're doing our speed, our, our speed and, and field sessions on Tuesday, Thursday, because they trade Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Mm. Um, so um, how would have our you know vertical numbers been or speed numbers been for guys that were in low intensity group because they have then allocated more of their energy towards some of their field work yes, yes. Um, and been fresher for those sessions and got more of those. As did you try? To- did you track that? No. Pardon me. Did you did you track that? 
No, we weren't able to track that. that no. Yeah, that that'd be that'd be sweet. Because again, that that like that was the big takeaway from uh, my, that was a big takeaway from your dissertation was like this fucking this whole thing that like the the lower intensity group had so much more energy left in the tank to spend on other resources and to spend on the resources that probably would give a far bigger transfer to the sport. So again, like mm-hmm. working on speed or even like just, I don't know, people maybe like the technical, tactical. Yeah, aspect, exactly. I mean, actual sport. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I say it tongue in cheek with our athletes, especially my football guys. I'm like, yeah, you know, like maybe you get better at like that sport thing you guys do. It's kind of important. <laughs> right? like, but I always come back to them, like, especially with like, um, you know, the football guys, like I would always try and bring it back to, Hey, if you were a basketball player, what would you do every day? You'd yeah, shoot. Right. Nice. So figure out. So for football or whatever it is, figure out what your technical skills is the most important and practice that every day, but make sure you have the energy available to do that because that's going to make you, that's going to, you know, close some of the gaps as opposed to, you know, all this, all the strength stuff, which is still, you know, I think massively important, but you still need to be able to play the game regardless of what sport you do. And this kind of comes with the opposite side of the spectrum of, you know, where I see my, you know, in, in a university work with lots of teams is I now take the soccer players, take over the other approach. Okay. You're doing tons of technical tactical stuff. We need to, again, as Boyle says, fill more of these buckets. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because you're a little bit more physically underdeveloped than, exactly. you, than you think you are. Um, oh, and again, it comes back to the spectrum. I don't want anyone listening to this walking away thinking now that me and Elliot are like, like saying that physical preparation like isn't important. It's just like, it goes back to like Fergus Connolly's, uh, like, you know, his, his, uh, like his, fucking four areas that he speaks with and actually it isn't even Ferguson's fucking four areas because if you open up any of the old Russian textbooks or even like uh, periodization the fifth edition with, with uh, Hoff and Bompa you know they talk about there's the physical the technical the tactical and the psychological like those yeah. four areas and it's just like us as S&C coaches because we have that bias towards developing the physical qualities like we always, we only ever kind of have a fucking tunnel vision towards the physical aspect and we kind of forget that there's the technical tactical and psychological elements and that sometimes and a lot of times we've got athletes who from a physical perspective are fucking well developed they're well confident they, you know they need to spend their resources elsewhere so it's just important to keep keep that in, in mind as well yeah well i mean a, you know classic example is sort of the strongest player team is you know this is his third year at the team and is just starting to get some playing time you know even though he was the most physically dominant player and you know at uh you know, 290 pounds had a you know 31 inch vertical still wasn't able to play so um obviously he needs to spend did, did more you say, did you say he was 290 and he jumped 31 inches yeah that's pretty impressive he's yeah he's an impressive athlete but he's he's actually starting to play now but again because he's actually worked on this this technical tactical aspect yeah, as well yeah. and starting to figure it out but yeah and just to echo you like yeah i definitely don't want to people to think that i'm uh you know, you know, don't think that physical preparation and being strong is important because, you know, I absolutely want all my guys to be strong. And, yeah, you know, yeah. we focus a lot on weight room stuff and with all my athletes. It's just, I want to make sure that, again, you know, if I asked you, Robbie, like, would you want to lift an extra 8,000 kilos, not get any stronger? Um, the answer would probably no. I think, um, I think Keir Wenham-Flat has the best analogy. He's like, right, you go to a car dealer and you, there's a Mercedes there or a BMW, whatever he uses. And he's like... <laughs> You go to this car dealer, there's the BMW you want, all right? And then you go to this next car dealer, uh, like, across town, and it's the exact same car, no different. But mm-hmm. it's just it's just $10,000 dear. And he's like, no one in the right mind would buy that. No, it, exactly. You'd buy the one that was the same car, everything's the same, but it was just cheaper because it, because it's just whatever, whatever it was. It's the same as you. Like, no way am I lifting 8,000 more kilo if I'm not getting any return on investment. Exactly. And um, one other thing that... I'll be writing into my, my paper just to, before I get submitted is I'd be looking at all the accessory, all the accessory, uh, 
uh, volume loads as well too, because uh, that wasn't something we calculated for them, but they did post them anyway. Wrote in their sheet, but you know how athletes are with that. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Um, but uh, and it's always know, it's always the fucking same ones. Yeah, exactly. But um, you know, one thing talking to a couple of guys is some of the the guys with lower intensity group. At least some of them, at least subjectively, reported to me that they're able to go harder on the rest of their stuff and put more energy into their the rest of their workouts, which usually for us involves you know a lot more a lot more of our unilateral work. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you know, you know, try and balance them out as athletes. So um, it's going to be interesting to see. Okay, did we do more loads throughout the rest of our workout to kind of balance things out as well too? Um, you know, because we do put a you know big emphasis on on single leg strength as well too. Um, and you know, you know, like for example. RFEs and, and hand supported RFEs and you know have a lot of guys that can do you know the four hundreds there for uh, hand supported RFE stuff. So Mike um, Boyle is smiling somewhere right now. Yeah, but I'm also doing back squats too. So he might I know. not listen, he won't he, won't he won't hate on it. He won't hate on it. Don't worry. He doesn't he doesn't yeah. hate, he just hates he hates bad back squats. That's what I like. And also too you have to understand Papi was selling that was selling D V D then. That's why you know, back in two thousand nine with the Absolutely. So, Absolutely. Come here though, one thing I do want to say too was I, I think too, you, you know, you'd know more about this than me, but I, I've been around American football. Mm-hmm. I think too, why it can be hard sometimes to convince an athlete, listen, when you get to a certain level of strength development or explosive strength development in, term, in, term, in terms of like power output, like I think it can be hard for them to like accept maybe, you know, sometimes like, you know, like, having to like just maintain or even if there's a little regression there but we're putting more time and energy into like your sport again technical tactical ability mm. i think that's a hard sell sometimes because and this goes back to like dopamine and reward systems like there's instant feedback and instant gratification in the weight room do you know like you know all, like you know straight away if you did a pr on the bench or the score yeah. or do you know what i mean whereas when you're out in the field and technical tactical stuff you're like am i getting better because as you know from the study skill acquisition we, we, you can't actually measure learning. You don't know if you're getting better, actually. You, you can only infer learning over a longer-term uh, basis due to performance. Like You can only base oh, learning has occurred. What is that noise? Uh, someone cleaning my... Uh, oh, is it? Yeah. That's all right. That's all right. That's all right. Uh, um, we, you can only infer learning like uh, to performance. And that's kind of more... like That has to be a delayed process because there has to be a trend scene on that. So mm-hmm. I think that's why, too... like. I know, I know I've heard this in some podcasts. I think, I'm not sure who, it might have been a pace. Well, if you think about, the other thing you think about it too is for these, you know, the, the, the athletes that, you know, we work with at the collegiate level is, well, what has been associated with their improvement of their sport has been uh, yeah, improvements yeah. of strength, right? Because squat, bench, deadlift, vertical. Well, they've, got, yeah, they've, gotten, yeah. well, they've gotten stronger. The, com- the combine puts it into their head as well. Yeah, and they've, they've gotten stronger. So automatically they associate, well, I've, I've gotten stronger. And for some of them, depending where they've come from, well, I've, true, I've strained true. really hard, and that's how I've gotten stronger. So that's the only way they know. And we have very like, true right now. I'm trying yeah. to trying to break that down for them. Like, yeah, Evan, like, like, yeah, like you've trained really, really hard, but you know, you know, you didn't really have that much strength to begin with. So anything's going to work. Yeah. Uh, but now it's about finding that optimal. That's a great point. That's a great. Um, and, that's, point. and that's the same thing, like with sports that maybe don't value strength. It's like, well, I've gotten. I've gotten significantly better at my sport not doing strength training. So why is this going to benefit? That's me? a fantastic point. Yeah, it works either end of that spectrum. That's a great, great point. Like, uh, and again, it's something I have thought about, but you worded that perfectly. Yeah. In that, when you're a newbie, like you're so raw that like just getting you like uh, developing your physical qualities is going to like have a very, fairly decent transfer to your sport. So mm-hmm. automatically, your mind like, oh, this when this gets better, my sport goes up, and it's like that's true to initially. 
yeah that's true to a point but then as you like become as your physical qualities get fairly well developed the transfer like starts to really and then, you, then you're trying yeah. to change their paradigm of, of how they view that's the it world. and then vice versa on that so yeah. like, you get that like really skillful soccer player well like or Wayne Gretzky's like I've never seen a yeah. white score goal yeah exactly like, yeah, but imagine how good you could be if we lifted up those physical qualities and then married up with just good acquisition yeah so it works both ways that's yeah, that's inter- that. just an interesting psychological thing like I see it especially with uh, like I think a lot of it with like the super super talented athletes that don't want to put in the effort yeah. um, is is they come to you know this certain level they get to a certain level where they have to work hard well their entire life they've gotten they've been successful just by showing up yeah so all of a sudden you're telling them that you know everything and they probably looked at it, the less skilled players who work really hard aren't as good as them it's like why would yeah. i want to why would i want to work hard like they're that worse. yeah they're, they're really strong and he's shit <laughs> yeah exactly why would i want to work hard like him so um it's just an interesting psychological thing. It's like they've associated their success with this type of training, and now you're trying to shift their paradigm in terms of a, maybe a more efficient way. And right. we talked about that that feedback loop. That's why I do think that things like gym wear are highly valuable. And I don't know if you've um, uh, followed like Dave Bayou over at Indiana University, University of Indiana. Oh. Um, so they uh, – I can't remember which podcast he's, he's been on a few, but so their, their secondary series, like you think about my kind of a tier system approach. Um, it's all focused on, um, like, like mean power, um, yeah, for their, yeah, yeah. so, but their goal is to shift, um, their goal is to shift the percentage of their max where their, their best power output occurs to the right. So it gets closer and closer to so 80 or 90%, but everything. So in their second series, they still lift heavy in their initial series, but their secondary series is all for, um, power output. So they're trying to improve their power outputs as, as sort of a means of, but they get that feedback. I think they use elite form, um, um, as, and that's one thing, you know, we use our gym wares for is to, you know, shift the emphasis because when all you can count is the weight on the bar, that's all that matters. But as soon as you can give them a different metric that, right. That is more influenced by velocity as opposed to total load on the bar or force, then all of a sudden it's going to shift the way they, they view things and, um, help, I think, help them buy into that transition because they get, like you said, that automatic feedback. It's an instant feedback. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Right? yeah. Where as opposed to waiting down the road for this power output to occur into something like sprints in a test 12 weeks from now, they can see it from a day-to-day perspective. So very um, good. Very um, good. I think it's Dave Bayou. Well, it's also, yeah, Dave Bayou is the head of S&C coach there. And then Matt Ray is the sort of the director of, of strength conditioning there at Indiana University university for football so, so essentially instead of instead of chasing more mass in the bar you're going for more velocity yeah exactly well they're also like you know so if your your best power output occurs at say 60 percent of your squat they're trying to get your they're trying to shift that to the right so that yeah. it occurs at 80 percent so yeah, that yeah, you yeah, can, yeah. against almost absolute load be able to still be as powerful as you are at 40 percent or 50 percent so because that miss you know collision sports oh be- so wait so wait they are at more load, but they want to develop- well there's two ways you go about that the load could stay the same or you can move it faster or you can put more load on they're trying to do both. And keep the velocity the same. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So they're trying to, you know, what you would normally do. But you, get, yeah. you could go right, you could go right going either. both ways, yeah. Exactly. So um, they still chase, they still chase uh, you know, force output in their, their initial series. I'd probably like their B series would be, at least from what I understand, um, would be what they're chasing. They use that for, um, you know, uh, upper body, but also things like rear foot elevated split squats. Um, they use that as well too. And they found some, uh, correlations when guys hit a um, you know a top power output in the weight room they would hit because they also track their miles per hour on the field and they reward that because they're tracking that um, they would they would hit a PB on on the 
the field that week as well too when their power output was was uh, bested in the weight room mm. from probably, a lower body perspective. Like an indirect measure of like how their nervous system's going that week. Probably exactly, and they've also used it for imbalances as well too. And um, yeah, very good, very good. Yeah, so you keep the load the same, move faster, or keep the velocity the same for more load times. Yeah, that's yeah. fucking, that's savage. That's really, really good. Elliot, you're a fucking, I like this. I like talking to you, sir. You're sparking ideas. Come here, though. Uh, Got to wrap up soon. And yeah. this has been a phenomenal conversation. But let's do a few quick fires. Um, what would you say have been the biggest lessons you've learned so far in your entire life, not just your coaching career? Um, entire life? Hard work matters a lot. Um, Such a football player, yeah. By the way, just for the listeners, you won't see this because we're on video, but he's got like his football jersey up in the background. Richardson, number 11. I love it. Yeah, that's from uh, that's from when I was what, playing. What, what position? What position were you? I played. I played safety. Oh, you played safety. Yeah, yeah. defensive back. So. Um, oh, I know. I know my football, but I know. Okay. Oh, that's I'm right. Fun. You've been over. Yeah, yeah. I'm watching actually a ton of NFL like uh, live documentaries. So like loads yeah, yeah, on yeah. like just uh, um, like you know all on fucking Peyton Manning and and Walter yeah. Walter Payton and. A uh, lot on the coaches too. Obviously, Bill, Bill Belichick, Bill Walsh, Al Davis, uh, Al, Dick Vermeil. I'm supposed to say Alf Miller, Dick Vermeil, uh, fucking Bill Parcells. He's gas. Yeah, yeah, he's what, awesome. But coming back to your question, um, yeah, just work ethic. Like I've I've always prided myself on working extremely hard. And then the second part of that that it's you know been influenced by, and probably just my upbringing. Um, as well as um, you know, the stuff I've read from different coaches is yeah. um, being a good person, treating people well, um, and that's something that you know um, I think my athletes would uh, tell about me is you know I, I'm you know stern, stern but fair, um, you know, <laughs> like a, the like the Russian police, stern. Exactly, exactly. I didn't think you'd pick up on that. Good for you. Um, but uh, you know, um, being a good person and being present and um, putting the FaceTime in and. Um, you know, serving others has been, you know, kind of the cornerstones of, because that's really kind of my whole mission statement with my athletes. I'm trying to provide them everything that I wish I had as an athlete uh, growing up. So um, doing everything for them possible. Yeah, savage, savage. It's funny too, that there's a, like a bit of a, it's a bit of a paradox that too, in terms of, you know, providing athletes with, with the environment you didn't have, but at the same time, not making them entitled by that. Do you know what I'm going to say? I suppose the best way, and I, I kind of have a half answer in my head. It's kind of like you, you give them the opportunity, but they still have to earn it. Do you know what I'm going You're like, right, I'm giving you, I'm, I'm giving you an environment that I didn't have, but you still have to work for it. Like, I think that's, the, that's the best way to send up. Whereas, and I'll let you answer that in a second because one of the best things I heard was from Neil deGrasse Tyson. You know Neil deGrasse Tyson? Yeah, yeah, yeah. the physicist. He was, he, was on, uh, he was on London Real and Ben always had, or uh, sorry, fucking Brian, sorry, not Ben. Brian, the host, Brian Rose, he has one of his his customary questions like we all have, all his podcast hosts. I have mine. He has his. One of his, like, you know, if you could speak to the, I think he says the 20-year-old um, Neil deGrasse Tyson, what would you say? And like he says nothing. And like I've been asked that question before. What would you? What would you? Advice would you give to your younger self or any regrets? And I would say nothing because everything that's happened in my life has led me to be the person I am right now. This very moment in time. So the grass Tyson said he wouldn't do anything, and then he went into this spiel about you get the old, uh, the old fucking. Um, immigrants that used to go to america from from europe like you know get out of europe it was fucking like you know particularly if they were in communism whatever uh, and they get over and they like they'd say right I'm go- i want to give my kid everything i didn't have and they worked their balls off as an immigrant they become like a very successful business person and then like their kids are born and they give them the american life and then their kids grow up to be fucking assholes yep <laughs> and yeah. then like 
then like the dad and the mom are like, what do we do wrong? Like, well, why do we not instill good work ethics? Like, because you gave them too much of a cushy life because you were like, you didn't want them to have the life you have, but do you not realize the adversity you went through made you the person you were? Like, so that was the same thing with grass. Oh, it's, an abs- it's an absolute tough balance. Like, I'm, yeah, you know, yeah. You know, you, you try and set them up for, it's that idea between, um, you know, setting your kids up for the path or setting the path up for the kid. So mm, very nicely, Paul. Right. So, um, you know, it's, it's definitely a tough balance. You want to run a program that's, that's, uh, that runs smoothly and you have enough things set up for them, but then being able to create that opportunity where they have to do some of the work as well and have ownership on it on top of that. Cause you know, you as a coach are probably frustrated when you're like, okay, we're going to do, you know, split squats or like, what's, what's, what's like, what's that? Like, or they do it where they start doing lunges. Like this is day one stuff, guys. Like, come on. Um, yeah, because they've yeah. just been so like, you've done most of the things for them. They just don't know some of the basic, uh, the basic terminology. Like the, the word that comes into my mind and you probably appreciate this too is facilitator. Like that's really yeah. what we are is a, is a facilitator. You know, like, listen, I'll set up the fucking environment. I'll have the programs down. I'll individualize it. I'll look after all those things. But at the end of the day, you have to put the work in. It's the same thing when you're a coach of a sports team. It's like, yeah. I, can, I can do everything, but once you guys are inside the white lines, it's all that's, good. That's what I tell our recruits, like my selling pitch to our recruits. Hey, look, like I'm going to tell you where to be, when to be there, what to do, how to do it, why we're doing it. But, you know, I can't do the work ethic for you. So you've yeah. got to, I'm going to set you up so you have to do the work. And, you know, it does become a bit more initially when they first come in their first year there it's much more of i'm going to tell you how to do this i'm going to tell you step by step and then it becomes a bit more of a um you know more of a guide by their you know third fourth year where they're a bit more in charge of the program they're not they're in charge but they're they have a bit more ownership over it and i'm more supporting them allowing them to make decisions like you know hey i think i want to go up a few pounds like okay like let's yeah what do you think and they're like yeah i think i can do it and they go up whereas the first year it's like i'm gonna go up i'm like no you're not going up you're gonna stay at <laughs> yeah, yeah. i can't remember which strength coach it was but uh i guess i'm gonna leave fts uh youtube video we talked about you know he he owns the he owns the the primary exercise so if it's a1 and b1 Very he good. owns those yeah, yeah, and he's yeah. like he gives you the uh might have been dave tate but he gives you autonomy over the rest of it in terms of hey you know you're, you're expected to go hard on your dumbbell rows on your split squats and all that but uh you know i'm going to own you know the big lifts and i'm going to program those out if you don't do well then i'll find a way of doing it better for you sometimes though what, what i found for me personally works well there with athletes on the big lift so if it's a deadlift or a squat or a bench and you know as a coach that they're not going to make this lift and instead, because you see this in a lot of like, you know, sort of younger uh, coaches who, who don't know how to deal with that. It's not conflict, mm-hmm. but they don't kind of know how to deal with the situation. So like, I, like the way I've learned to do it is like, uh, they might sort of say in the instance, you know that they're not, like, he's putting weight on and like, whatever. I'd be like, yeah, I saw their last set and they're putting weight on. Or they might say, can I put more weight on? I was like, I'd be like, I'd probably, I, no, I'd be like this. I'd probably leave it because, you know, that, you know, we can leave for another day. And they go, no, no, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. And I go, okay, no, like, honestly, I, I'd say, no, that's perfect for you. But if you want to go for it, I, I think it might be, like, I'll say it like that to them. And yeah. then, and so I, I set them up to learn a lesson here, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, and I do it in a way where they're not going to kill themselves. Usually it's like, yeah. Pinterest for every spotter. Yeah. And, and then, like, they go down and then they miss it. And I go, a little bit greedy do you think and i go yeah. yeah and they're like probably should have listened to you you know i kind of yeah. I have to sort of learn it a little bit i tell uh our guys tongue-in-cheek that we have uh we have an ego box that sits outside the weight room and <laughs> when they come in they can put their ego in there and and uh and uh they can train and when they leave they can go pick it up after but i don't need any any inflated egos in the weight room that's gas. Uh, next, uh, next time one of my athletes miss a lift, I gotta like 
I have this I, I like I leave a box inside the door and I'll go out and I'll, I'll grab it and say here it is here you go <laughs> yeah exactly exactly so it's just, uh, it's just a, yeah just a different way like there's yeah. kind of sarcastic tongue-in-cheek remarks that uh you know just be able to kind of get that message across without being a you know an asshole about it yeah you know i like i i try and do it in a sort of a, a funny but they learn the lesson type way like i yeah. also oh greedy you were too greedy now too yeah. greedy do you agree and they're like yes i should listen to your prescription now, that doesn't happen often but sometimes no. sometimes well it one part of your mind is like i like that guy's work ethic at the same time even though you know i kind of have to rescue him from himself <laughs> that kind of way. anyway uh next question for you how do you learn how do I learn? Um, What's your learning process? And like, so I get lots of answers. I'm, like, I'm someone that, um, someone that needs to listen. I need to do it all different ways. I need to, I need to listen. I need to sometimes write it down. I need to do as well too. So um, I think that's why the uh, doing my MSc at St. Mary's was, was such a good process because one, I started later. I didn't start it until I was, um, you know, had five, six, years of coaching experience after having my undergrad. Um, so I had a base of, uh, you know, I had context to be able to apply it to. Um, but then I was able to sort of listen to the, I was able to listen to all the lectures. I was able to you know, write my thoughts down. Um, and I was able to see everything and, and see it in my practice, you know, the next time I went into it. So, um, you know, I'm, I, uh, you know, I'm not the, the, the quickest learner. I don't have photographic memory, so I need to, to see things over and over again, but it's, uh, yeah, the, the MSc at, at St. Mary's is unbelievable in terms of, uh, you know, best advice is, is give yourself a few years of actual experience to know where it applies and where it fits into. I thought that made it a lot easier for me. But on top of that, you know, I live about a, almost an hour from uni- university. So I listen to podcasts every day, um, yeah. you know, try and read and knock out at least, uh, try and knock out about a book a month as well too. Um, and now, now this year I'll be formally getting back into more of the seminars and conferences just because uh i'll serve all my my continuing ed money went towards my master's the last three years yeah great stuff yeah yeah and sure as as a fellow mary's uh um student well i know you're done now but you're you're alumni now yeah i've said this multiple times on on the podcast it's a fucking savage uh masters it's completely uh completely exceeded my expectations Oh, absolutely. Um, it was, it's been one of the best decisions I've ever made in terms of my professional growth and development. I think, you know, initially when I started getting into SNC, it was a lot, of, again, going back to that why, how, what uh, pyramid. It was definitely learning the, the what's initially and, um, and then more the how's, but St. Mary's has really sort of increased the breadth and depth of my why's where I'm like, okay, I can start to understand where this fits because I think at the undergraduate level you you really just and I see with the students I work with is it's very much black and white it's this or yeah. this yeah. Uh, but St. Mary's shows you the entire it shows you the gray and um, understand where to apply things in terms of context that's what I, that's what I always get from John Goodwin's lectures it's like yeah. the, the amount of context that man just gives is just like savage like his lectures are, are, are fucking brilliant but it's a shame now he's gone he's full-time over in Saudi Arabia now but yeah uh, like, listen, his uh, his legacy will live on there, and yeah. the, the other guys there are crushing it too. All the other absolutely. Guys. But uh, another question for you now is your top life advice. So uh, I know you, I know this kind of crisscrosses with the lessons. I know you mm-hmm. said like work ethic, but is there any particular life advice you'd like to give anyone that you think would potentially help their lives? Um, well, since this is SNC, this is SNC related podcast. I probably talk a little bit about that, and we mentioned that offline. Um, you know, finding a you know. Finding a, a balanced job, 
right. finding a very balanced job. Um, you know, I think, you know, it, it, there's always something sexy about, you know, chasing, you know, the, the big programs or, um, you know, the professional teams. And, and when you get into that environment, you know, after a couple of years, you realize maybe it's not, maybe it's not what it all cracked up to be. And you know, I'm at a relatively small university and, uh, you know, one person I've read a lot from is Rama Kefri and he's always talked about making it a big time. He's, he's always talked about making the big time where you're at. Um, and that's something I've had the chance, like, you know, initially I thought this would be a stepping stone position where I go to a bigger school. Um, but really what I've turned this into is, you know, trying to create everything that ha other big schools have, but able to build it myself. And, you know, I'm, I feel I'm in a good situation where, I have a lot of t autonomy over what I do. I have great security. Um, you know, I have a, I believe it, you know, put a lot of work in, in terms of a lot of hours early in my life, but in my career, but now I'm a bit more balanced and I'll become more balanced as we go. And, um, you know, a lot of my athletes will ask, Hey, Elliot, like when do you, you know, you want to go to a big D one school? Do you want to go work at a professional team? Like, I just don't like, it may, yeah, it might be a bit more money, but you know, anyone can get fired at any time. And then you're out the door as well too. Whereas this is sort of, again kind of like what i've talked about that's that might be a high intensity approach to things uh this is sort of yeah, a more yeah. slow cooking approach where it's it's more sustainable over time and like, i like uh, that analogy i like that analogy yes yeah, tie it back in um you know there's there's hopefully opportunities come down the road where i can move in a bit more of a uh, more of a management role to be able to you know coach a little bit less but have more staff to work with and you know provide myself better life balance at the same time too like um there's people like steve lidstone that have sort of blazed a bit of a path here in canada for collegiate snc and um you know built positions and i'm sort of at a, at a point now where i feel i have the opportunity to be able to to, to bring the field up but more create more roles and then raise the bar now you know have a you know, couple of assistants that are other you know, full-time positions at other institutions and um and uh but i think it comes back to again just you know um yeah it might be sexy working at those those big places but uh burnout's real and um and it's not sustainable i don't think long term unless you yeah. truly true like you said robbie when we're talking offline unless you really truly love it absolutely and it's uh yeah it's like like you you've built a fucking beautiful thing where you're at so i mean like I, like why would you want to even try that you know it's it's just uh yeah as we spoke about it offline too i think uh, you know the grass always seems to look greener to your side and then when you yeah. get that when you get to the other side you're kind of like ah, it's not as green well, as you thought yeah well our, our coach uh, our football coach here he's he has he always has sayings as well too his saying is grass is greener wherever you wherever you uh wherever you take care of it so um yeah and and that's kind of back to ron mckeefrey's thing about um you know, just making the big time where you are. And, yeah. um, and that's sort of, you know, what I've been like, okay, why not just, you know, it's a lot, a lot more, get a lot more out of it when you build it yourself, as opposed to Absolutely. Know, over someone else's project. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And just something I actually did mention, I did this kind of a digression, but you just brought back my mind with the high intensity thing. When we were, when we were speaking about slow cooking athletes, because uh, you probably know that I, I, I do some podcasts for OPEX yeah. as well. And, uh, you know, James Fitzgerald is massive into long-term athlete development and, you know, the slow cooking process. And uh, and I just watched a lecture there a few weeks back from John Goodwin on a needs analysis. Um, <laughs> and so like, th th this is completely separate to the question you just answered there, but it just reminded me, I meant to say to you, Aaron, uh, like, and, like with with the sort of when we were talking about applying a high intensity stimulus to an athlete too soon in their development. See what what's happened a lot too, and you you know this and appreciate this. A lot of the studies that come out, like they're short term studies, exactly, and they, they, and they apply such like a high intensity stimulus in these short term studies, and 
John brought up a great point in the lecture I watched. He's like, what, what you don't get from a short-term study is knowledge of the accumulated training effect of multiple training blocks. Uh, so you get, so again, like, you know, how mm. basically it's what fucking, um, Mike Isertel would call, it's actually, it's actually from Dr. Stone, phase potentiation. You know, you're not seeing the effects right. of phase potentiation or the residual effects from a preceding block or how a preceding block builds a foundation for a succeeding block. Like, but so these high intensity studies, like they're, cause they're of such short duration and they use such a high intensity stimulus. Yeah. You're going to get like a big response to that, but you kind of alluded to this too. What would fucking happen if that study kept going for another four weeks? And oh yeah, that's that's one question that came up in my Viva was, you know, what do you think would have happened um, if you continue the study for another twelve weeks? I'm like, well, yeah, yeah. You know, I think the low intensity group would actually gotten past the high intensity group because the high intensity group was already tapped out. Tapped out. They, they yeah, can't go much more. That, you spoke about keeping that buffer like that extra. Yeah. Little, that, yeah, extra that, that buffer keeps on going, and yeah. I mean that's the problem with. Uh, you know, relying purely on the research and being, you know, 100% purely research driven is that yeah. you could easily, if, if I wanted to be kind of like an academic dick about it, I could be like, well, this research says you need to train high intensity at 90% all out um, and you'll get stronger. Yeah. Right. And like exactly. I'm research based or evidence based, but that's not really taken into account sort of real life. Um, and that's actually what I kind of talked about when I did breakdown there's a study on that brian mann put about what was apre um and it was only a six-week study um and the you know, the group that got stronger you know went all out like essentially went to the went to the bank for two sets as hard as they could for six weeks and they outperformed the other group well granted the wasn't really well balanced that the um the high intensity group started off weaker, like significantly weaker and only approached the other groups starting strength levels, um, six weeks later. Um, but you know, also like, but if I want to be evidence-based, I could like, purely evidence-based and not sort of take in other types of evidence, like, um, you know, practical experience. I could be like, Oh yeah, you just need to go all out, you know, yeah, every yeah, lift yeah. twice. Very good. Very good. Yeah. It's, it's such a key point too. It's just, Again, from speaking with yourself today now and then speaking with James, but then like John, like John's needs and presentation was savage. I was going through that going like, and again, it's 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 one of these things where like, it's not like something like like brand new to you. It's just how it's worded, like how they thought about it in a slightly different way. And they're like, John, you know, I like the way you put that across. Mm-hmm. So you get Absolutely. this concept of you know the, the accumulated training, the accumulated effect of training blocks, and um, how the, how that isn't appreciated in a short term study because again because it's a short-term study so yeah you're just trying to get you're trying to get results you know you wouldn't be able to train uh, you know probably wouldn't be able to see differences if you went you know low intensity for four weeks exactly exactly yeah uh so i think i'm on, I think I'm on the last three questions here or maybe four questions um is there yeah four questions is there anything you do on a daily basis that's essential like is there a ritual that like that you have to do every day like so for me like yeah, walking, training, and, and reading. Like, if I don't do mm-hmm. those things, like, you know, the day kind of wasn't a good day. Uh, for me to have a successful day, I definitely need to uh, write everything down that I need to get done on that day. Um, cool. Having right. a good workout. I usually try and prioritize my workout in the morning before everything because um, I'm the type of person that uh, I give to other people if I've given the opportunity. So um, even the expense of my own sort of mental health. So I try and get my... You know, just by getting a workout in the morning before everything yeah, started, yeah. I feel like, okay, I've done something for myself and now I can spend the rest of my day supporting other people as well. So, What, what time uh, What time would that be, at, Ellie? What time do you get up? Um, I'm usually up by between four and five. Oh, you're a, you're a strength coach. Yeah, I get up. Well, it doesn't help. I live, you know, 
50 minutes from the university. So, um, and sessions start, you know, since we're in an academic institution, you know, we have early morning sessions. So, um, you know, sometimes I'm working out as early as, you know, 515, 5 uh, but we also have uh, you know coaches workouts for our sport coaches that I jump in with um, and we get them going which is a good environment and I highly recommend um, if you're working in a you know a team setting or you know university setting if you can get your sport coaches in and run some workouts with them they'll start to see uh, start to see through different lenses and just know Another way to break down some barriers and uh, and show them because they've never seen you probably coach a workout session, but to see how you know you regress and progress things and kind of you know we have a 65 year old cross country coach and a you know a, a, our our swim coach is a former Olympian and he's lost 30 pounds and then we also have some 30 year old basketball coaches in the same workout so uh, but they can see how you as a coach can scale it and make it a good workout for everyone so it gives you some some more credibility as a strength conditioning coach as well. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. Um, your top and current book recommendations. So what are you currently reading and what's your top book recommendation? And, and the book recommendation can be anything that doesn't have to just be like within physical preparation. Okay. Um, right now I'm reading, um, 12 rules for life by Jordan Peterson. Everybody's reading that fucking book. I, I, yeah. refu- I refuse to read it because everyone's reading it. Yeah. So, um, one of my it's, athletes it's, actually it's bought good. that for me. It's, it's good. good. Um, yeah. it's, uh, it's a little bit like, extreme ownership where you can kind of gloss over some of the story aspect and you can get the, the message from like sort of the beginning page in the last couple paragraphs. I get um, you. I get you. Um, so that's I, what I'm reading right now. I, I mean this in the nicest possible way, um, yeah. <laughs> which, which it's funny because when people open up with that's, that, you, you know, they're going to say something. Yeah. Uh, like everybody was ranting and raving about ex- extreme ownership. And by the way, Jock, Jocko Willink, you know, never met the man. And like, uh, Listen, like he's he's a beast, he's a savage, and all that. Uh, even though I hate this bullshit, they're lifting at four a.m. in the morning. Mm-hmm. But listen, I understand where he's come from because that's his whole environment and nature and, and yeah. everything that's shaped him as a person and as a man. Um, but like, I, I got extreme ownership, and like, it was just I was like reading, I was like, yeah, the, the kind of people like kind of like like you, you know what the book's about it was like extreme, like every he builds up the story and, he goes, and then we realize it was my responsibility. Like every yeah. like, it was on us. It was like, yeah, I kind of get this like and it's like yeah. everyone's, everyone's kind of like blown away like oh my god it was like that it was almost an analogous to like matthew walker there in the joe rogan podcast like, about sleep like where mm-hmm. he's, yeah sleep's like really important it was like oh my god did you, did you hear that <laughs> like it's like blew my mind it's like how about that sleep's really important it's like people are like blown away but i found the same with, with extreme ownership people were like god that book is like life change i was like he kind of just says like own your shit like you know what i mean mm-hmm. yeah but so um yeah, 12 Rules for Life is something I'm reading right now. Um, I would definitely recommend, we talked about it earlier, um, Shoe Dog, the Phil Knight story. I'm getting that. Another one. Yeah, um, that's, I've re- recommended that to a couple people, and that one's been, you know, a lot of feedback I've gotten from recommendations off that's been really good. Um, and then S&C-wise, um, shoot, I'm, I'm just starting to get into Game Changer by Fergus Connolly. Um, Funny you said that. I was only yeah. recently in Bill Hartman's house. I was over in Indiana. I was over at IFAS for a few days. Myself and Bill are good old mates. And it was funny because I know Fergus. I interviewed him recently again. Yeah, yeah, I heard that one. Well, I interviewed him not last year, but I interviewed him again like literally two weeks ago. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I still officially don't have the book yet because I was like, Fergus, listen, I have like fucking tons of shit that I, like my whole thing this year was like, I'm not getting any more. I've got like literally, I have a library of books here, and it's kind of like, I bet you the answers to questions I already have are in my fucking library if I just took probably to, to read them. But uh, I I really gave it a good flick through at Bill's house, and I was like, I'm getting this, I'm getting this book. Oh, it's 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 good, and something to sort of keep my mind busy as I'm finished up my masters now. So, yeah. um, yeah, those are. That's kind of what I'm reading right now. Um, I mean, there's probably not much that 
I could uh, bring to the table in terms of other guests that haven't uh, haven't brought up already in terms of you know the classic stuff from yes. that you know, a lot of good authors have put out before. Sweet, sweet. All right, bud. Uh, it's funny I was listening to Elon Musk today, so because I usually mention his name here. Elon Musk has finally developed a way for us to 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 get off the planet of Earth. And for whatever reason, you've decided, you know what, I'm going to give myself one more year here on Earth, and then I'm going to fucking go for it out in space. Uh, so you've only one year left on Earth. What would you okay. do with that? What would you do with that year? I'd probably, I'd scale back what I, what I do at work. Because um, I do love, honestly love what I do. Um, and so I'd continue to work a little bit. Um, but I'd, you know, I'd spend as much time as I could with my family. Um, I would, uh, you know, probably take my, my family traveling and see as much of the world as I can before I leave it. But uh, yeah, that would, that would be pretty much it. I love what I do. I love my family, Um, but uh, would like to like to see a bit more of our world before we leave it. Come here and tell me this. Um, You married with kids? Yeah, married, have a 10 month old. So she, uh, she came along just as my ethics were due. So my ethics were due on a Thursday. She came on uh, like Sunday last December. So um, yeah, that was tight. and then uh, trying to bounce full-time work with writing my, my dissertation was tough, but you know, my wife's extremely supportive and um, yeah, we, I got it all done and obviously pretty well on that. And yeah, so she's, that's my daughter is not is you know, the time I spent with her is now, you know, what do you spend on my master's? So that's filling that time nicely. Savage. That's great yeah. to hear. Great to hear. Congratulations, by the way. Thank I, you. I had a baby 10 months ago. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, or as we say here in Ireland, commiserations. <laughs> I'm, okay. I'm joking. I'm joking with you. Um, last question for you now, my man. Um, oh, before I wrap up too, pronounce the university you work in. I want to make sure I'm saying it right. Acadia. 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 Because yeah. it's funny. I think we went the whole podcast and we didn't really say because I'd say someone is like, where does he work? Yeah. Acadia. Yeah, it's Acadia. A- There's an Arcadia in the States, so people get that confused. Yeah, it's a unique so it's just, name, Acadia. Yeah. Acadia. yeah. It's kind of a cool name too, Acadia. So Acadia University. Yeah. Cool. yeah. So uh, final one for you. I'm over in uh, Nova Scotia. That's where you are. Is that where you are? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm like, Elliot, listen, let's let's go for dinner, man. And I'll bring the magic powers and you know what the magic powers do. I yep. say, yeah, Elliot, you can bring five people to this dinner, dead or alive. Who would you bring and why? Okay, I would bring... Um, I'm not much of a his, I'm not much of a historian. He's so. fucking he's fucking prepared. See, he listens to the podcast, people. Yeah, I'm 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 uh, not much of a historian, so I'd keep it pretty current. And again, I have a, I have a soft spot for for St. Mary's, um, just because when I go over there every summer, it's it's unbelievable, and I enjoy the people there. That yeah. uh, that uh, and the conversations we have at night. So I would still bring you know Dan John, uh, Dan Baker, Dan Clether, um, and then I would. Uh, Mike Boyle, I'd just pick his brain. And then I would probably bring as my fifth person. Um, I was trying to think who it was going to be. It was going to be probably something like Malcolm Gladwell because I've always read his stuff. And I just uh, – Very good. Um, but uh, – um, or, yeah, it would probably be those five right there just because, again, the conversations we had at St. Mary's in terms of sharing that type of information, the conversations we had after the bar were um, – were some of the best, the best experience highlights of the St. Mary's degree. Um, we will bring those people together again and, uh, would just be, 
absolutely phenomenal. You know, I couldn't agree more. I absolutely, this is so funny you say that. I absolutely fucking love going to the summer on site. And it was gas because this year, this year, like, uh, because I just, I love the library and I just love the, like, the kind of little private space you get. And, like, the one drawback is, right, you can't cook your own food, like, there, you know. Yeah. Like, that's it. But it was funny because uh, I was there for about 10 days on this on site. I actually didn't even need to be there for 10 days, but I, I just wanted, I, I kind of see it as, like, almost. Well, that was like me. My, uh, it was, that's, that's the way I treated it. I treated it like, 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 summer camp. Yeah, 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 me too, yeah. But at the end, we were coming to the end of the few days, and I remember a few of the lads, like, they were like, I can't wait to get out of here. I, I want to go home and get a meal. And in my head, I was like, uh, I was like, I could kind of, like, stay here all summer i love it yeah oh yeah so, so I, I just call it summer it's like summer camp for strength coaches so oh, yeah. um like this year i only needed to you know i had my dis at the end but i was there almost at the very beginning um and same with my second year i went to all the the dan john lectures again and same. um same with sat on dan baker stuff as much as i could and um because you know just to be able to go see those guys live is is uh is impressive because it's funny you say that because i remember dan uh not dan excuse me john goodwin said uh, like it was that one of the, it was on my in- induction um so like my very first day there almost and he was like listen i understand life circumstances get in the way and some people have to defer or whatnot or some people just like you know they might have to drop out and he's like, but he says, what boggles my mind is you paid for your first year fees and you don't still, you still don't come to the onsite. And he's like, look at the, like the world-class fucking people here. Like, but not, it's not even, not even like, listen, don't get me wrong. I fucking absolutely love Dan Baker, Dan John, Steve Mangles. They're all mm-hmm. legends. But like, and then like, the other thing too is, I just want to say this and I'll say it publicly, like the actual staff and lecturers at Mary's are fucking world-class as well. Yeah, so they are. If I start naming them, I'll, I'll forget someone. Like they're all savage. Um, but uh but not only that, you notice too, like your fellow fucking students, like you, mm-hmm. there's some people already who are like students and they're already working in like major pro sports and you're like, uh, yeah, you know, there's some like really smart people there, but oh, yeah, actually, absolutely. Actually one, I'm sorry, one very, 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 very last question for you. What, what, like talk about Mary's, what did St. Mary's mean to you? And like, what was like your highlighted Mary's and like, what would you say to anyone who asked you for Mary's as a recommendation? Like obviously you'd recommend it, but what would you, what mm-hmm. would you tell anyone? I would say first and foremost, have a few years of experience of actually being coaching in the field before you go into it. I found that too because I'm 10 years coaching before I went back and did that. And I yeah, found yeah. so I was like six or seven and I thought I got more out of it than maybe some of the other students that had just finished their undergrad and just rolled into it. And the only thing they got from it was the theoretical as opposed to maybe how to blend the practice and the theory together. Uh, so I would say that first and foremost. Uh, the, the second thing is um, I would say you know, the highlight for me Geez, every every the summer on sites were the highlight for me every single the year. Class, yeah, they're um, And uh, just the, you know, what you got out of it, but more importantly, the people. Like I enjoy just talking with uh, all the people from my class year after year, uh, going to the pub and, and sharing stories, learning what they're doing, and then coming back the next year and hearing about stuff they learned about the previous year and how they implemented it and the challenges they had. Um, and then from the content of the course was, you know, the other, I guess everything like you're taking master's level type of courses, but it's all geared specifically to strength conditioning. So yes, there's, you know, if you're not strong in physiology, I wasn't strong in physiology, but it was all practical for me because it was geared towards SSC, same with biomechanics, same with motor learning, all that stuff. So you're, you're taking it, you know, far better than any just generally based master's based program where you might be learning about just theoretical stuff this is all geared toward s and c mm. and um yeah like you said the, the all the instructors were absolutely top notch and um really it just expanded you know 
you know, how I see things. It comes back to, you know, if all you have is methods, if all you learn is methods, all you'll have is methods, you'll just replicate those. But when you, you know, when you under, when you understand all the underpinning things, you can devise your own methods. And that's sort of where it came to for me is as opposed to just, you know, dealing with what's, I was able to create my own what's, yeah, uh, create yeah. my own new tech techniques and all that and be able to better see the world through it so an absolutely transformational program um and recommend for anyone that's looking for their for their pro for an, an msc regardless of where they are in the world i love it i love it st mary's university their master's strength condition a transformational program you heard you heard absolutely. it here, people. but uh just to finish up the show you spoke about methods there and i, I love this saying that i got from one of my mentors liam hennessy you know he says uh, methods are many but principles are few methods may change but principles rarely do exactly yeah so exactly. I, love, I love that yeah and yeah it, mary's really gives you like a, a a fucking really deep perspective for everything as you kind of said it on it, it fills in a lot of that gray area yeah absolutely does it allows you to understand the gray area yeah big time anyway this was fucking phenomenal man really really was uh this is actually one of my favorite conversations i say that in a lot of podcasts but this was f- phenomenal and i would love Love, love, love to have you on again because there's lots of other stuff we we, you know, we could speak more about, like maybe more about your training philosophy and then your training systems and like, you know, because I get a, I actually have a lot of listeners who are within university setups in America. So obviously your positions are very applicable to those guys. So they'd probably love to hear that too. Um, Savage episode, man. Really, really appreciate it. Stay online there while I wrap up. So for everyone listening, as I've been saying in the last few episodes, you're spoiled. You're spoiled rotten people. All this information for free. Um, but really it's because it's, it's me I'm selfish I just want to talk to these great people and they say yeah and they come on uh, also appreciate by the way just so people know Elliot like flew from the west coast yesterday and hopped online from here early for him so I really appreciate that his father got remarried congratulations there that's thank it. you um, on another queen, do you know Scott Fass? no no because he's in Vancouver so he's, he's a strength coach up, in, up there somewhere I was just wondering if you know him for perspective it's, it's a quicker flight and shorter distance I know, I know. from as I said that, as I said that, I was like, well, you know, it's actually, it's actually quicker for you to come to Dublin than it is to go over there. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Thanks so much, Elliot. Really, really appreciate it. I'll put every, all your contact details into the show notes. And for everyone listening, take care, be well, and stay strong. Mm-hmm.